This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. All right, well, I'd like to welcome everybody to the, 2000, to the start of the 2015 Pennsylvania AEP conference. So welcome everybody for taking time out of your busy schedules to come. And we are going to have time today to uh, both to, uh, to do workshops or at least to try to brainstorm about how we can use the power we have through the shared governance system to work on uh, part-time faculty, but we do have also uh, people who are establishing new chapters uh, or re-establishing chapters at places like Gwen, Mercy, and Keystone, and we also have uh, the chapter at Marywood, which is in the middle of a, of a very big fight. And so we're, we're going to have time and we need to spend time in trying to work together to come up with solutions to some of our, our problems um, that we share. So anyway, so thanks very much for coming. I also wanted to thank, before I get started, uh, Michael Levitan and, and Bob Jensen, Jensen for uh, hosting the conference. It's, it's not, it's a long way from nothing. Uh, to put on one of these events, and it's on top of all your other duties with teaching, advising, shared governance, and having a life. So, thank you. Um, I'll just point out, uh, maybe we'll do introductions uh, later, or we could do those now. But let's wait a little bit until everybody shows up. But we have people here from a cross-section of certainly eastern and central Pennsylvania, uh, people from Alvernia, uh, someone from Arcadia, I don't know if Summer is uh, here, uh, Gwyneth Mercy, Holy Family, Keystone, Kings, uh, Lincoln will be coming later, Lebanon Valley, Marywood, Misericordia, uh, St. Joe's, Valley Forge, Villanova, Wilkes, and York College. Uh, so a lot of different institutions uh, with, a, with some shared features, and I'll talk I am uh, fond of saying that the AUP as, is as American as democracy, and it is as un-American as democracy, uh, since what we're really talking about is democracy in the workplace. And the, the way the law is set up, uh, the default situation at most institutions is that uh, we are serfs, and we have no freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, or any other things. And so a lot of what the AUP has done over its 100-year history is to establish norms and policies which to some extent are taken more seriously, certainly by better institutions, that allow us to have a voice in how our institutions are run. And that is extremely unusual in the world of work as well as to have due process over hiring, promotion, and dismissal. Again, all of which is deeply unusual in the world of the American workplace. And as I'll point out, I think if you look around at our democracy, it is not in what I would call great shape. Um, and we could blame who we like for the anti-science, anti-intellectual, you know, just general stupidity, 
of our elected leaders. But what I would say to us is in some ways a more optimistic note than just kind of railing about the Koch brothers or the corporate agenda or what have you, that the real problem is that the American people have not stepped into the void that is American democracy. So if we don't take leadership, then other people will, and they will impose on us their vision for society. So the longer I'm in the AUP, the more convinced I am that a you know, academic freedom for a free society is a great idea, and it's a profoundly radical idea. Um, and it's one that we have to keep reinvigorating, and I think we, we can. So, so in some ways, I'm not going to talk about all the problems we have, because I think you're probably familiar with them. Um, I think there is reason to be optimistic or cautiously optimistic that at least in Pennsylvania, and at least in this part of the state, we are starting to turn things around. We have not turned things around, but we are moving in the right direction. I think we are, I think you start to see some indications of this, even in the, the kind of wider world of politics, that the American people are starting to realize we live in the midst of an extremely wealthy society, but if we don't do something about it, the American middle class or the American dream, what have you, is basically going to be a memory. So I think there's at least some greater awareness of that. Um, we're going to hear in about an hour that, the, that the, there's a massive problem in higher education when it comes to part-time faculty. And I'm not going to belabor that. Um, and that does in a tremendous disservice to part-time faculty, to students, and to our profession. And so I think we do need to do something about it, and I think we can do something about that. At least, you know, we can start to do something about it because we have more power, certainly collectively, than we than we know. Um, so, so I just wanted to say we're going to have a really wonderful speaker in the form of Jerry Beyer, as well as um, Jacob Bennett. I don't know if Jacob is here, right? And so I think we have some some really innovative voices in the faculty talking on something that we had, we've just begun to do as a state organization, which is to start to organize faculty rather than just be reactive. And a year ago, we decided to focus on uh, Catholic institutions. And I think so a lot of you are here today from Catholic institutions. And so I think we have certainly not figured everything out that we want to figure out or need to figure out, but we're started the process, and I think we're in better shape for it. All right. Um, and I would just point out that this idea of focusing on Catholic institutions came from Tim Blessing, who is our um, vice president and president-elect, so I have every indication that the, the emphasis on Catholic institutions will continue. Um, we, as part of that... Uh, it's, as I was saying to somebody before the meeting, it's taken me several years being in the state, uh, at the state level. I've been here for eight or nine years, um, and this is my second term as president. I'm, I'm I feel like I've just started to figure out how to use the state organization fairly effectively, uh, which is could just be because I'm have a slow learning curve. But I think it's. It's, it's not immediately obvious, but the state organization actually gives us a powerful tool 
particularly for dealing with institutions where the administration is um, hostile, uh, or even they are a recalcitrant. And so, uh, so because the state organization can write letters, can initiate investigations, can support financially or organizationally chapters and help them get off the ground, but you know, the it, it's a great leveler in the sense that um, faculty at individual colleges are scared and intimidated, and often with good reason, because they can be fired. Whereas I can't be fired from Holy Family or from Villanova or any other place because I don't work there. So we have, that's one of the things that our state organization gives us, as, a, as well as an ability to network and coordinate activities, which I think when we get to the issue of part-time faculty, we're going to really need to, to do that. Because once one school starts to improve the situation for part-time faculty, and it puts pressure on other schools to say, hey, this, you know, if a, if a small school can start to deal with that issue, which is really thorny, then it puts pressure on richer institutions like Villanova or St. Joe's to act. And so I think we're going to find that we can raise the bar a little bit, or at least maybe, maybe more than a little bit. All right. A lot of time that we spent in the last year at the state organization was spent on Act 153 and Act 15. And, um, and so that is what I would say is just a really dumb, stupid, ass-backward law. Um, and it's just, it's, it's not been well received by the wider public. Uh, it's the Sandusky bill that was supposed to prevent the Sandusky uh, scandal, and it would not have prevented Sandusky from doing what he did. Um, so I think some people see that as a problem. We've built, we've, we've never, as a state organization, we have not spent a lot of time, by which I mean any time, uh, dealing with matters in the electoral or political realm. And a lot of that's because, as an organization, uh, we, we have some representation from state-related institutions, and we have a lot of representation from private, regional, or comprehensive institutions. And so, by and large, the state legislature has left the private institutions alone. And so this is one of the first times that they've decided to try to really go beyond that deal. And so we've, we have, uh, the good news is we, we have developed good relationships with ABSCOP. We got most of the damage undone uh, through Act 15, which was from last year. And once the budget resolution is resolved and the legislature can uh, function again, then we are likely to go back and hopefully get the rest of Act 15 undone. Um, and I do want to solicit your input in terms of uh, how Act 15 is being implemented at your institutions. Are they testing all, are they requiring background checks on all faculty? Or are they just cherry picking the faculty who, who deal with dual enrollment students? Moreover, if you know how many dual enrollment students you have at your institution, that's useful information. Um, so that's partly because we work with ABSCOF. ABSCOF, in a sense, we can get a broader sense of what's going on in the state because we have a broader representation of institutions beyond the PC system. So I'll be coming back to you or if you want to <coughs> what's going on.
as Susan Safford pointed out to me, who's from uh, the vice president of the Lincoln chapter, and he's going to speak in a few minutes about the Summer Institute, the state organization has had really good success in setting up chapters. We have, I think, at this point, I forget the number, it's in the low 30s. So we have a lot of chapters established throughout the state. And she reminded me that the last time the national organization talked about how many chapters were established in any given period, a quarter of them were in Pennsylvania. So we're, we, do, we do fairly well at establishing new chapters and help getting them started. I, for the people who are establishing or reestablishing chapters, that's good. Um, we, at the state, we don't have a ton of money. We don't have any staff. But we do have enough money to help send people to the state, uh, to the summer institutes. And that's one of the things that Susan, I think, uh, she had, well, if you, if you were there at the summer institute this summer, and how many of you were in Denver? Right. The, there was a great turnout from chapters, and I worked hard to get people to go, and often the biggest problem is not the money, it's just getting people to take three or so days out of their schedule to go. But once they were there, Susan basically really ably networked, and so one of the things that we're going to also talk about today, just briefly, is a real success story in setting up a regional coordinating body in Northeast Pennsylvania which is exactly the kind of thing we, we should be doing to just extend solidarity and assistance to each other. Um, and it's really needed because Mary Wood, as you're going to hear uh, probably in about 30 minutes, is kind of really in a fight for the life of its institution and certainly for the life of shared governance. And so one of the things that we are going to have to figure out when we get to the business meeting is how are we as a state going to respond to the crisis at Maryland. <coughs> what can we do to, to basically effectively lend them some assistance? Um, all right. And then, okay, so we're going to hear a little bit about uh, what's going on in Northeast Pennsylvania, both from Brooke and from Mark Painter, who's the uh, president of the Misericordia chapter, which is reestablished. Our membership at the state level, like at the national, I would say is not is it's it's slightly improved. It's well to put it this way, it's not dying. It's not declining. And for a number of years, at least at the state level, our membership has really gone down. Largely because the generation that joined in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies is retiring from the profession. The last time I did an analysis, we still have far more people who are retired and still paying dues than we have as graduate students, part-timers, or adjuncts. Which is not by design, but it's just a, an indication of how powerful that earlier cohort has been, and it's a challenge for us to try to figure out how to reach new voices. And I think many of you at your institutions, it's the, the younger faculty who need to be educated about where tenure came from about how, if they've gotten a job as a tenured professor, that didn't just fall from the sky, it wasn't just the generosity of XYZ institution or dean, but that was really something that was fought for and they need to continue to support the organization that gave that uh, its impetus. So, okay. 
In other business throughout the state, there is a union organizing campaign uh, undergoing at an institution I don't want to talk about, uh, but there it's, it's good news. I don't want to basically jinx it uh, or expose it. So I just, uh, I, I've learned over the years to try to keep my mouth closed. Um, but our, and that would be great to get another collective bargaining chapter in the state, or to get two or three. And if we had enough of those, we could probably have some paid staff, um, which would help a lot. But again, our biggest problem is probably less money than leadership. And that's because, uh, like, as you know probably from your chapters, the leadership in your chapter is probably a small group, maybe just you, or maybe two or three people. Mm -hmm. And so one of our big challenges is how do we democratize it, make it more participatory. And so again, uh, growing out of the Summer Institute, Susan uh, led a proposal, or kind of spearheaded a proposal to create a more inclusive leadership approach that I think if we do this over several years will really make a difference both in our capacity to support chapters and to build chapters as well as to uh, create more paths into leadership at the state level. And so, so uh, as well as we're going to have to have an election because we have uh, at this point three open seats on the state executive board. So that's which in some ways is bad news, but it's also good news because it's an opportunity to get new people in there. Uh, hopefully some of you are here uh, interested in doing that. Okay, um, so it's not all happy news, although I've chosen to focus mostly on good news. And that's because, well, for the obvious reason that I, I want people to have a sense that we can do something about it because we can. Um, I would just point out that, for instance, the Penn State chapter, which has, you know, which last year was one of the contenders for what we would focus on, I wouldn't say it's collapsed, but it's it's, it's serious problem. And I just, and it's it's not that we don't also have great chapters at research universities. We do. Villanova's one of them. St. Joe's. We have a chapter at Duquesne, which for many years didn't have one. But a hundred years ago, at the founding of the institution, it was not people like us who founded this organization, right? It was full professors at Johns Hopkins. It was full professors at Penn. And so by and large, it's not that there are no members at the Carnegie Mellons or the Drexels or the Penns. It's just that there's not a chapter there. And I think, and I, and I suspect that's often because, less because they're so badly run, but because of the, the research pressures, the other kinds of things that faculty do, that no one is willing to basically sacrifice their own time and career to put the, to put the effort into the profession. At least that's what I think. But we have uh, Jerry Oslo here from Jaxel, who was basically the heart and soul of that organization, and is going to be talking to us about uh, something in, uh, later about um, political organization. So we're increasingly an organization of regional liberal arts colleges and comprehensive universities. And that's, that's fine. And there are advantages to that. I, I, I'm not going to discount that. And I think there's probably some reasons that 
for the nature of how human beings organize solidarity, that it makes sense that it's easier to organize that when you have to deal with 100 people or 150 people rather than several hundred or a few thousand. And I think at that level, Penn State is just a challenge uh, that might just be beyond our capacity right now to figure out. Um, but so I think that if we spend some time as through this organization and devote uh, and have a plan, which I would say up until the very recent past, the state organization had no plan other than just to stay in business. So certainly when I was recruited, I asked the longest standing member who was a Villanova professor, I said, what do you want, what's the goal plan five years from now? And he said, survival. So I think as, at least as a state organization, we've moved beyond that kind of mentality. I think we've, we have, I, I certainly have the vision that if we devote some time to organizing, networking, and harnessing the power we have, both as citizens through the electoral and lobbying process and on our campuses through the shared governance process, we are going to find in 10 years that we have a lot more uh, kind of notches on our belt in terms of wins around adjuncts, new chapters, members, you know, more staff, a better social media presence, and that we can start to basically make the faculty voice heard. So I think in, in some, our problem, <coughs> at least on a lot of campuses, is less one of administrative overreach, although God knows that is a serious problem. It's faculty underreach, right? It is sometimes the understandable drift into cynicism or learned helplessness or sometimes even a lot of institutions, this kind of patron-client relationship uh, between deans and provosts and faculty that is antithetical to democracy. And so I just remind us that what we are in the business of doing is having democracy both in our state and in our campuses. And that is a an American and an un-American tradition that we can all be proud of. So, I guess if there's any questions either about what's been going on or that you wanted to ask, I'll be happy to address them. Um, the big three universities in the city don't seem to have chapters according to what you said. What about membership? Are there there's membership at Drexel. There's membership. There's membership at all those institutions sufficient to have chapters. I mean, Temple would be the big exception because they're organized by the AFT. Um, but even there, you're going to find, even at unionized campuses, you certainly in PC uh, chap uh, institutions across the state, there's 14,000 uh, faculty there. There's, I don't know, I, I, it's been a while since I ran down the numbers, but there's certainly a handful of people that think the AUP is important. So, but, I mean, so, but I, but I, it's getting, and I remember the last time we talked about uh, Drexel is people just, I think the sense is they're just not the time to kind of set it up or to run a chapter. And in part that's, that's, you know, we have to, I would say like as a chapter president or as a chapter officer, somebody said this to me once about, uh, who was a postal worker, postal clerk, and she said, somebody told me that your first job 
as a union president is to find your replacement. And that's your, that should be your ongoing job. So in some ways, I think that's, that's the challenge is that if we do everything ourselves, and I certainly am, I, I'm guilty of that, even though I know I should do better. I, I mean, because, you know, it's a, it's a collective action problem. I know I can do it, or at least I can uh, do it, but then that puts a real limit on the organization. I think a lot of us probably know that at our state, or at our chapters, right, you kind of make it happen. And, and so in some ways, our challenge to ourselves is, if we're going to be the organization we want to be, we have to figure out how to include more people. Walt and Tim? No, just us. Uh, one of the things, if you look at, I'm the Vice President, Tim Blessing. Uh, one of the things, if you look at our membership list, places like Bucknell, which, you know, a small island like that, uh, is um, we have far more than enough members of Bucknell to organize a chapter. But that's, we know, and we have tried for years to have essentially someone come forth and organize a chapter, but by the very nature of the work they do at Bucknell, you, you can never find anybody with enough time to do it. So essentially we weave them in because when the state, this, if you are not in an organized chapter, the state chapter is your chapter. So that is, is essentially how we have had to work with uh, of the research one institutions and things such as that is we become your chapter um, and um, and we have a number of those across the state. Right. So in some ways that's our probably our workaround is to try to I think the more the more we build an inclusive leadership model at the state organization I think the more at least the, the goal that we're going to talk I will talk about this later we have a whole it's printed out in your uh, handout for the business meeting. But part of it is to do things, more things like the Summer Institute, and then to start to require more of people that we send to the Summer Institute so that we have more leaders at a regional level across the state in terms of organizing chapters, doing a financial analysis of the institution, uh, a shared governance analysis. Um, and I think we, and I think all that is kind of doable and within our reach. And then I think the more, the stronger the organization comes, I think the more people will see that it's easier for them. We, we essentially lessen the cost uh, and the learning curve on any individual so that it becomes easier for people to say, oh, I don't have to do everything. I just have to do this much. I just have to step forward. Or it becomes easier and easier to step forward. That's the hope. Uh, Mike Clinton, good at mercy. Um, uh, at our institution, it's been several years since we had a, uh, a chapter as, as such due to a attrition uh, from the, the generation that you're talking about and the vulnerability of that you know, of uh, the mid-career uh, mm -hmm. folks uh, who uh, lack tenure and, uh, and such. Um, and uh, I've, over the years, I've gotten uh, some positive response to the idea of the AAUP, but uh, an unwillingness to, to join or to expose themselves to the, uh, uh, you know, to the possible retaliation from the administration. And one idea that's been thrown around, I think Tim and I might have talked about it at one point, is the idea of kind of a consortium-based sure. uh, chapter where, you know, if there's not enough bodies at Wynn and Mercy, 
to form a, a chapter or at least a solid chapter to maybe work across the lines with, you know, Cabrini and the uh, Rosemonts and uh, Immaculatas, who are very similar institutions, um, and, uh, and see that as kind of a, you know, a super chapter, right. as, as it were. And the organization has had a history of having regional chapters. Uh, your TD reminded me of this. There used to be a Chicago chapter. There used to be a North west uh, Indiana chapter. There was a New York metro chapter. And I guess what I would go back to is uh, I was originally a labor historian and a, a friend of mine who's a labor historian said it's worth remembering that a hundred years ago, but long before there was a National Labor Relations Act, there were organizations of working people, which is really what this is. And there would be, sometimes they would have contracts, but then they would often get smashed and it's worth he said, but they would always spring back. And he said that he was doing research on the paper workers union. And he said, he, re he ran across the phrase that they would say, we, we are perfecting our organization. And I guess, and I was thinking, and he said, really what people did was they had more of a focus on, they, they didn't need to have a contract or they didn't need to have a chapter. They didn't need to have a formal organization because they went from place to place, but they kind of knew what they wanted. And I think a big problem that we have is we aren't even clear, at least as a faculty, of what we want. And so I think I, 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 I am not an optimist by nature, right? If the glass is half dry or half empty or half full, I would say it's bone dry and falling with leeches. <laughs> so I do not say this uh, just to, because I have a sunny disposition. But what I would say is that if you, if on our, on our campuses, if we are professionals and we hold ourselves to high standards and we hold our institution to high standards and then we continually point out the difference between what are really reasonable, good management strategies for higher education and the difference between that vision and what's going on, people will start to come to your organization. And I, I can say that from experience that at Lebanon Valley College, which has all the kind of problems that talk about cynicism, helplessness, client-patron relationships, that over time, a lot of people have either moved from, sometimes even hostility, we have a lot of people who didn't, who thought we were like a motorcycle gang, or, um, and, or just indifference, and a lot of people from the business department to other departments have really, you know, they're increasingly saying to us, Oh, I need to join. I need to join. But you have to have a several years perspective to carry that out. And I think part of it is we, you know, we've gotten sucked into a sort of short time frame, which I'll blame on our iPhones. Uh, John, what Mike had said was that what in mercy. When I retired from the Holy Family last year, the um, uh, the chapter almost completely collapsed, and then the president, the new president, said that. Uh, she didn't recognize AAUP and that if any members, existing members of AAUP, um, they cannot meet on campus anymore and they have to meet <laughs> off campus. And I think with like Gwennett and whatnot and the other schools, there's power in number. And I tend to think if, if all of these schools got together 
uh, and formed a regional conglomerate of some sort, that would at least give these people, uh, especially in schools like uh, where I used to be at, um, the power to be able to uh, say to administration, hey, you know, at some point you have to recognize us. Yeah, I mean, uh, when I'm thinking of specifically, the Holy Family is in, is in our consortium, yep. Zepshi. Yep. And, I mean, the administration is organized across the, uh, across the consortium, and so it seems kind of a, a logical extension to organize the faculty across that consortium. And we might also want to consider, and I mean, I'm not at a Catholic institution, but it might be worth having a Catholic caucus or a Catholic network, because I do think some of the issues that these institutions have uh, are particular, peculiar to your background. But I think, to many of them, I think there's kind of a sense that you can't have an organization because that's antithetical to Catholic values and which would be a surprise to the Villanovas or uh, University of Scranton, which is a union shop and a, and a Jesuit institution. So I think the more we share information, I think that will improve things. Yeah. I'm sorry, Walt. I also think that uh, a lot of adjuncts do not know about this organization. And they probably have a lot of numbers. You know, and as we know that a lot of them are underpaid, you know, in addition to us being underpaid. But uh, they're underpaid and they do not know about the organization, so we need to develop a way to inform them uh, to get them to be members too. You know, I, you know, I think that would definitely increase. Yeah. Sorry. I think in response to that, I feel that the AAP has done a lot more recently to reach out to adjuncts to, to you know, those kinds of faculty, which I think AAP has to do. Um, when I was a grad student, we did organize our part-timers and we tried to organize grad students. We ended up doing it through SEIU. We went to AUP first and had them come in and talk to us and I felt, we, we all felt that they really didn't have enough for us, that they were really focused on, you know, tenured professors. And I don't think that that's the case anymore, but that may be, you know, kind of how people have felt. Mm -hmm. So.
the part-timers on my campus or even in a consortium of small schools and they reach out to National AEP, I think now they'll see a lot of help. I think it is getting that message out to everybody, finding somebody willing to step out and take that chance. And maybe the state can help a little bit in, in that area in getting the ball rolling and then letting national come in and do bulk of the work. Yes, Jeff. Just, just as a aside, first of all, a crisis is what establishes membership at schools. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when the crisis goes away, so does the membership. Right. Uh, and the issue of a lot of adjuncts not being aware of AAUP, I can tell you a lot of faculty are totally unaware of AAUP. And postdocs don't know anything about it. And if members within a university can reach out to new hires and introduce themselves and tell them the new hires and postdocs what's going on, that might start educating people to start thinking about membership. No argument. I don't think most people know who we are, or if they do, they think we're the AARP. What I've learned is not, or at least what I've tried to think about is not how do we organize everybody, but how do we add to what we have. And so that's why, like at a lot of schools, absolutely, like Marywood is a good example. It's formed out of crisis, but as an organization, it there's lots of institutions that aren't in crisis or that in the few, you know, in a, in a certain point in time, I don't know when that will be. It sounds like it's going to be longer than, uh, rather than sooner. Uh, Marywood won't be in crisis, right? And so then at that point, that's, a, that's an additional challenge is how do, you, how do you build for that, take that into account? Because I think that, that is probably where more work can get done that's more lasting. Um,